Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with your charismatic host and prominent safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Be entertained and informed as the Safety Doc discusses both best and bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. The truth will keep you safe. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. Welcome to uh, my interview today with Jennifer Fritton, and we are going to learn about rescue dogs. And also we're going to learn about what is a service dog, what's a comfort dog, a comfort animal, some of the differences. And it's much more complicated um, working in the world of, of rescue dogs than what you might think. So Jennifer is going to help us to better understand that today. For those of you who are watching and listening, who are school administrators or else parents, um, or just people curious about um, how does the process work when you have a rescue dog that is responding to a call. So we're, we're gonna talk about those things today. Um, so Jennifer, if you can start by telling us about your work with uh, rescue dogs. Ah, well, I became um, involved with a volunteer team. Um, the great majority of teams that you're going to find that do search and rescue, um, either canine or um, ground searchers are going to be volunteer personnel. Um, and I became involved uh, just as um, kind of a field support person in 2010. Okay. And didn't have a dog, uh, which was, was nice, um, just because there's a lot of things that, that the handler needs to learn as far as navigation, safety, um, ham radio, incident command systems, that type of stuff. Uh, so I served as field support for several years until I got my um, dog, who was a German Shepherd. Um, and she, uh, she's been training in, in area services, air set. Um, okay. And our team works with, um, we're primar primarily a dog team. And, and we have dogs that do area search, which find, uh, search large tracts of land, um, typically using air scent on the wind, air scent, and, and they find any human scent, living or deceased. We have the um, human remain detectors dogs, who are specialists and they find only deceased. Okay. Uh, there are the... Um, uh, disaster dogs, which are what most people are familiar with as far as... Right, so like a, a building collapses or a, a tornado or some severe weather and, and the buildings are mm -hmm. compromised. So, yeah. you, so you're mentioning a group, so tell us, um, is this a, a group like that you train with on a regular basis or is this, um, do they come from all around and you converge in one central area, or how does that work? Yeah, uh, my particular team um, is it's statewide. Um, so you've got people that are kind of all over the state, and how we work it is you kind of work with your, train at least once a week in your regional areas, like north, okay. south, east, or west regional areas. Um, and then once a month, you, we get together for um, an all-day drill, so scenario-based drill. Wow. Um, which is just important because if you don't put it together in practice in those scenarios, you're not going to be able to do the real thing. So, so there's quite a bit of training and, and traveling that that are involved. And that's all done volunteer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And um, you did provide me a picture of your dog. Uh, and your dog's name is Serenade. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. She's a talker, so she was up to. Okay. So. Um, so if you could help us understand the differences between rescue dogs, service animals, comfort animals, uh, I think a lot of people confuse the terms or, or interchange those. Um, and, and not only, you know, like rescue dog, but um, sometimes if it's a small horse or, or rabbit or things like that, and, and what you're talking about is very different, but if you could help us um, get an understanding of those terms, that would, that would really be great. Okay. Um, well, to break them into groups, um, your service animals 
where um, right now um, only dogs and miniature horses have a small mention. Your service animals are, met, are covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. So they have, um, they have rights under the ADA, which I can break that up a little bit more. Um, search and rescue dogs and comfort animals are not covered under the ADA. Um, so your service dogs are, or service animals, but typically service dogs, are um, task driven. Um, okay. They're trained to um, perform some sort of task, whether that's to pick things up, to guide a visually impaired person, to um, to make, in the case of a psychiatric support dog, perhaps to maintain a certain amount of personal space around that handler. Sure. Um, sure. But they're task driven, and they're they're required by law to be allowed anywhere where their handler goes, um, so long as that the animal is under control and not causing a hazard or disturbance. They have to be allowed in restaurants, airplanes, taxis, anywhere. Um, they're protected under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, search and rescue dogs. They're not. They're 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 aid dogs. They help the human community, but they they're they're not required for. Let's say I have a search and rescue dog, but I do not have a disability that requires me to bring her anywhere. One sec. So you're talking about a search and and rescue dog. Um, what what does the certification uh, process for that look like? So, it depends. Um, currently, there's a lot more um, push to have more regulation and uniformity. Um, so there are your professional organizations in the search world, such as um, the National Association of Search and Rescue, um, <coughs> FEMA, which a lot of people are familiar with. Um, so there's much more of a push now to have that um, so that people know my dog is trained to, you know, NASAR levels. Okay. Which uh, more people will know what that means versus in the past you've had, you know, you just kind of get regional, well, my dog is, is trained to this level above <coughs> by, my, by my team. Uh, which just at this point is to, you can have a dog that's <coughs> trained really well and far exceeds and maybe even NASAR standards. But you could also have people coming in, and maybe they've been to three practices. Oh, okay. Um, so there, there's a push more for, for more uniformity. Okay. Uh, yeah. <coughs> so as I'm understanding it, um, search and, and rescue dogs being um, trained to a level largely for identifying um, if, if somebody is lost or if somebody is deceased in recovery of that. Mm -hmm. Service animal specific um, task and that protected under ADA might be helping a person opening doors, might be keeping um, a certain amount of space around a person or other activities. How about comfort animals? We didn't probably touch on that at all. Comfort animals are basically, they have no protections under the ADA. Um, essentially, they're, they're pets. They're, they have no more rights than your average pet, except that you can, if you have a comfort animal, then you, you, you've had um, a psychiatric professional say, this person needs this animal for their psychiatric well-being, which allows you then to have that animal, um, say, in, in housing situations where maybe there's no pet policy. Okay. Um, and to take that animal also, I believe, on, on airlines and trains where usually there's no animal. Do you know how that applies to schools at all? Um, a comfort dog um, differs from a psychiatric dog. I would say probably your district. It's very, it differs okay. from district to district. Um, they would not be federal. Uh, a school for a service dog cover, that the child requires because of their disability. Right technically has to accommodate, so long as that animal is not creating a disturbance. 
right. um, and interrupting class and just having the dog because the kids are, are interested in the dog, that's not enough of a disturbance to deny that child the dog. Um, <coughs> whereas a comfort animal, it gets stickier in schools, um, especially when you start getting into um, the, uh, the autistic aid dogs, which so long as they're task oriented and then they're, then they're a service dog. So those are really questions to, to ask the um, parent to provide certification from a physician as to the need, um, or? What if it's a, there, there are two questions generally that, and again, it gets, it gets stickier <coughs> with school systems. <coughs> get some water. A lot of people don't, don't know this, but Jennifer is allergic to dogs. No, it's a, she's it's not. a horrible, she's not. horrible conundrum. <laughs> it, <laughs> um, but um, I lost track of my. Um, we were talking about um, comfort animals and two questions. Okay, for a service animal, whether it's in, like I said, the school districts are stickier, but in general, for a service animal, people are allowed to ask um, Is this animal required because of your disability? Um, and what tasks is it trained to perform? Okay. They, they may not ask for proof. They may not ask for severity and nature of your disability. Um, that's, you know, those two questions are it. Is this animal required? And what tasks are, is it trained to perform? Um, and that's, that's all you're allowed to ask. The, the comfort animals, <coughs> just for the, the uh, that, if it's a comfort animal, then, yeah, you're probably allowed to say, well, you should then have a letter from your, um, your mental health professional. Okay. Um, may I see that? Um, but generally, that's only going to apply to um, the housing and transportation as far as, as planes and trains. Schools, I'd say, you might have to take it more on a case-by-case -case basis. If it's an autistic right. animal, right. that animal may be trained to um, be task-based as far as to interrupt um, pattern behaviors and things like that, in which case it's a service dog. So you could ask for documentation that it's a service animal versus uh, maybe a parent who is just saying the child or the animal acts in this capacity and I'm the one making this determination. Um, so now the child, now the dog is a service animal. Um. able to say you know have this the dog has to be specially trained okay to um, to to perform these tasks so somebody just going out and saying well my my chihuahua calms him down right that's not sufficient okay. the dog has to be trained um, to um, interact in, you know, in this environment and to do these specific Tasks for this individual, individual, despite distractions and so on and so forth. Uh, as far as what documentation in schools, um, that I'm not. We'd have to mm -hmm. look at for more information. And, and I think what you're pointing out is is just that it is a point of uh, very individual uh, decisions for schools, and then also um, things to consider as far as what documentation you might ask for might want to have these policy discussions ahead of time. Uh, so if this does happen, um, you, you do have a way to at least procedurally go forward with it and making sure that you're recognizing um, what questions you're able to ask under ADA and then what questions you're not able to ask. So I'm going to, I appreciate that, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. So you get a call um, tonight and someone is saying that um, it's, it, it's the police are contacting you and, and saying, uh, we need you and serenade at this location because a four-year-old boy with autism has wandered away from his home. Uh, step me through what happens. Is that how you get contacted? Is that is it through the police or? Yeah, generally the law enforcement organization is going to call um, the, the team dispatchers or the, or the the contact person for the team. Uh, so if I was that person, then yes, they might be calling me. But otherwise, they're going to call 
the team and okay. say, this is our situation, what sort of resources might you have available. Um, I would ask more questions as far as, as, you know, what's going on, what's the area, determine what kind of resources are, are needed, and then um, contact our team dispatchers, which would uh, either put out a whole team um, call out or um, more of a measured, measured response as far as, okay, we just need these folks versus everybody. Um, and How long does it take you typically then to mobilize? So if you, if you did get that call either directly from law enforcement or from your team dispatch tonight, you know, it's 7 o'clock, um, you know, let's say the location, you know, is within an hour before you live. Um, how, how fast does something like that come together? Generally, if it's within an hour and you've got um, multiple people who are able to res respond in your area, um, then it kind of depends on um, there's all you know. All, there's always the factors as far as are your people at work? Can they get out of work? Um, do they have their stuff with them most of the time? Um, most people carry their equipment in their car. They're obviously most people are going to have to go home and get their dog. Right. Um, so it could be anywhere from you know if someone's at home and they got their dog and they get a call out and they can they're within an hour and they might be able to be there within you know an hour and fifteen minutes. Um, you know that fifteen minutes as far as just grabbing the dog and, and putting right. your stuff on and getting the car going. Um, so it could be anywhere from as close as just how long it takes to drive there to um, some folks have to wait till they're out of work. Others, you know, if you're if, if you um, if your air set teams are they live across the state, it might be well we can get these resources such as ground searchers and so on and so forth. But all our air our set teams live across the state. They might have a three hour drive. So it kind of depends on where your resources are. So I think when we talked before, uh, one of the things I was. Um, Surprised that a little bit is is it does take time to assemble in most cases the, the, the team and, and the resources and sometimes when that's portrayed on television and, and so forth it, it seems like something happens and then the resources are there right away and really it takes as you said longer in a number of cases that, because people have to um, you know either leave work go home, you know, coordinate from different areas, which um, rescue dogs are best, and, and teams are best situated to respond. And so um, another, another question I had was, so you're dispatched through law enforcement, either directly or law enforcement contacting your, your lead person. Uh, what, what happens, or have you ever seen where it's a, uh, parent, possibly, or it could be an organization, maybe a group home, and, and they they know someone um, like you, and, and they go directly to that person and say, you know, they call and say, I need you to come over here with your dog because, um, you know, this, this happened, mm -hmm. and make that, try to make that connection, and they're not really going through a law enforcement. Has that happen or is a risk of that happening or it does happen quite frequently oh goodness for, for okay. whatever reason yeah they, they know about you or they just say you know for whatever reason they know about dog teams and they get on the my dog my child is lost and they get on the computer and, and look it up um, so yeah it does or they maybe volunteered with with a larger search effort in the past um so it does happen what if so say if a parent calls um me to say, hey, my child is missing. Uh, number one, I'm going to ask, has half the police been called? Right. Um, and if we can hopefully, we'll assume that the police have been called. Um, and what I will do is is ask them to give me, you know, contact information. What is their name? You know, phone number. Can they give me um, the name and phone number of the uh, law enforcement officer that's the lead um, on the situation? At which point, then I would be able to <coughs> encourage that person, the, the parent, to, you know, uh, I'll, I'll 
give this uh, law enforcement officer a call, why don't you go ahead and let them know that you've called me. Right. And then I am also going to take that con contact information for law enforcement, call them, let them know, hey, I've got this parent um, in this situation, called me, this is who I am, these are our capabilities, um, this is what we're available for, and just you know, offer our services to let them know. Yeah, we're out there. So you, have there been situations where you've responded, but then there's also been um, self-dispatchers who haven't been contacted by law enforcement, and maybe they're also responding and perhaps not checking in in a centralized site. And you, you get there and you're starting a rescue, and all of a sudden, you know, here's here's another team which we weren't aware of. Mm -hmm. uh, does that seem, uh, you know, some people just doing that? To, to try to help out, but but just responding to an area and immediately starting the search with a, and, and without making the contacts with law enforcement and so forth. That also regretfully happens fairly frequently. Um, thankfully, not as far as another dog team on a, on a search that I've been on, um, but it does happen fairly frequently, and it's one of the hallmarks of a teams that that, that is not professional, just because it is problematic if you've got, especially if you know. If you've got somebody who's living, um, then you've got a lot of balls in the air. Um, you need to get, you need to go through that that incident management system, know what your resources are and where they are and how to manage them. And if you've just got, you know, loose cannons coming in, and they're messing up, like, there are certain areas where that are good for dogs to search, um, and other areas that are not, and other ways you need to manage your resources when you're setting up a search. Sure. Um, and if you have unknown resources just coming in and, and dispatching themselves and just, I think I'll just go look over here, then they can really be messing up um, and interfering with your search and, um, you know, quite possibly um, damaging your ability to find that person. If it's, um, you know, a deceased subject, um, then same thing, they could be damaging your ability to find that person. If they're not a lot professional where they're coming through and self-dispatching, then um, if they do come across um, any articles or evidence or, uh, <coughs> or the individual in question, they could be damaging that evidence. Um, so it's, it, it, it's, it's problematic. And I can envision from a school district standpoint where the school district is probably going to contact law enforcement, but then of course, um, if if a child by chance um, you know would wander away from a playground or something like that, um, you know text messages from teachers or from a student you know, in the context of parent and parent, you know knows someone that does have a rescue dog or or some type of search team and all of a sudden uh, that person shows up. So I think what you've um, You've indicated it's really for the lead administrators in the school to make sure they're working with police and that there's some kind of check-in point for whoever is responding. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's where the school could have some of their additional staff, um, you know, on a on a perimeter that if somebody is coming in, you know, with their truck and they say, you know, I'm here with a rescue dog, that then they are directed to law enforcement to check in and not that it's like, okay, you know, you're here, but um, I didn't realize that you were, were not part of the rescue, um, the coordinated rescue effort, so that person then parks and, and, and goes off and does um, something, as you said, that could be interfering with the overall rescue effort. So how, how does it work? I, I, we talked, um, you said if there's a body of water around, you know, immediately to dispatch people, whatever resources uh, proximal to that area to make sure that that risk, you know, was minimized as much as possible of having um, somebody lost getting near, near water. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you know the area that you've covered? So you have your rescue dog and you're out there and you're with your team and, and how do you communicate with each other and set up that you know, we're going to go through this section, we're going to go through this section, so it's not 
random overlapping or that you're missing areas? I, I would imagine that's pretty complicated. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it certainly can be. Um, and when you're first, say, certainly if you've got a missing child, number one, you're going to get oodles of people converging on the scene. Your community people are going to hear about it. They're going to want to come and help. So like you said, get somebody to contain your scene, have a staging area where you send them there to sign in and then stay there until we can do something with you. Um, with, uh, as far as setting up um, the search and managing it, um, you know, it, the first person on the scene is going to be getting information either from law enforcement or from, if the law enforcement doesn't have it, they might be asking the teacher, the parent, the school administrator, okay. um, gathering that vital information um, about about the student, about the subject, um, about hazards in the area. Um, an IEP can actually, especially if you're if you're talking about um, a student with any type of disability, it's got a lot of information on it. So if they can pull an IEP and have it available, that's great. Okay. Um, well, that yeah, that's interesting. And you mentioned hazards in the area. Uh, that's a question I, I, I wouldn't have thought of um, initially, you know, meeting with the building principal and, and the principal, you know, would say, well, yeah, there's, there's um, you know, a real marshy area in back of the, the woods at the edge of the, the playground or there's some, you know, barbed wire fencing that's not too far away or there's, this crosses over into a farmer's field, but then beyond that, so, uh, yeah, all of those things, and then as far as um, what would you pull from the IEP? What would you? Well, if you're, especially if you're saying we've got our autistic child, um, what are their capabilities? What are their weaknesses? Their strengths? Are they verbal? Um, um, are they afraid of animals? Will they evade? What are they attracted to? A lot of autistic kids are attracted to water or to large machinery, um, trains. Big steeples, things like what? What is a draw for them? Lights right, and stuff right, like that. Right. So if we can say, well, geez, there's a river back here, um, and yeah. there are train tracks over here, and here's the clock tower that booms every once in a while. Right. Um, you can, you might have an idea as far as these are priorities. So if you're you're setting up your search sectors, um, number one, you've got um, lost person behavior there's probabilities and patterns as far as this individual fits into um, this group of subjects. And so probabilities say this is generally what they do. Um, so you can kind of get your, your overall um, perimeter set up and then start assigning. Um, uh, so do you, would you say that it might be that a probability would be that they're going to, and, and I, don't, I don't know this, um, but maybe one probability set would be this person would tend to become frightened and they're only going to go so far and then they're probably just going to stay in that location. <coughs> um, yep, well, it, you know, if we stick with the autistic kids, generally they're found um, within, like 95% of them are found within a 10-mile radius. Okay. 25% are found within um, a quarter mile radius. Within that, um, then it's also, I think, some large percentage are found within some sort of structure. Um, so it can tell you this is the distance that you, that, right. that they're generally found, and these are the environments in which they're generally found. Um, and these are the hallmarks of this particular group, whether it's autistic or um, somebody with Alzheimer's right. or suicidal individual, um, they tend to act in patterns um, that fit that kind of group. So, so you mentioned suicide, <coughs> suicidal, and that is something also with, um, with you know, school districts that could be a, a reason why they would be contacting, um, you know, for rescue dogs if a student is missing and has, you know, expressed risk of harm to self, what, what, what might be a, a pattern you would look for there, or a, a, how would that inform your search if you knew someone um, 
was at harm to, or, or had expressed that they were considering harm to self. Um, will you be gathering some information as far as, you know, have we done this before, that type of stuff? Um, how familiar are they with the area? But uh, just for a suicidal individual in particular, most of the time they are found fairly close um, off off a trail, off a road. I mean, I think it's no, no more than a thousand feet because most of the time your suicidal individuals, they want to go somewhere generally that has some sort of meaning for them, whether it's just, oh, I like, I like watching the water. So maybe they'll go down by the water. Right. And they want enough privacy to be able be able to, to do the deed if, if that's what they're if that's where they're going, but most of the time they also want to be found eventually. Right. So right. generally, they're usually found um, off of off of tra off of trails fairly close by. And that's been <coughs> my experience in working as a uh, sheriff's department uh, critical incident debriefer at a county level um, is that. Um, Persons who have uh, suicidal tendencies are either, you know, low, are located very close to areas where the, um, they would presume that they would be be found, um, and then you 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 gave some incredible information on the IEP. I was thinking back, a number of people probably haven't seen it, but the movie um, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Arnie. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, playing um, a young, uh, probably 12-ish, 13-year-old boy with autism. And one thing Arnie does is he continues to climb up the water mm -hmm. water tower and um, it needs to be, be brought down. Um, but so how do you, how do you communicate? Do you have a two-way radio? Um, is it cell phone? Or how do you communicate when you're out on a search? And we're kind of getting, getting toward the end. You've given wonderful insight and I think um, answered some key questions for, again, school administrators, parents, anyone with a question of, of just really how does this all work? I mean, where they have then starting points where they can go and, and look for more specific information. Um, and I'll do a little summary toward the end. But does, is it two-way radios or how do you make sure that you're not searching but whoa, this person needs to be further over here, or else, like, I, I've just found, um, you know, like, a backpack or something like that, and I'm not sure if this is, if belongs to the boy we're searching for, or... Um, well, my team uses ham radios, so everybody has, coming in, um, has to go through their training, and you have to get a ham radio license. Okay. Um, that's not required for all teams, but it's just... It's easier. Um, some folks use family radios, some use your cell phones, um, and we will use cell phones to a certain degree at times. Um, but I mean, there's not always cell signals, especially out in some of the areas you're looking for. And then we have radio protocols as far as um, um, communicating. Okay. Are, are you ever uh, GPS units to, make, to, to know where you're at, and, and do you... Um, for example, use cell phones and take a picture and say, like, here's where I'm at, like, right now, maybe if there's, like, you know, a field ahead of you or something, like, here's where, or, or here's, like, the item I found and, and get that back, or does that, um, am I kind of getting a little into the well, science can, fiction realm on, on that? Well, we do use GPS, yeah. um, generally your actual handheld GPS units because they're a lot more accurate. Um, and map and compass because it's many 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 times I've been out and GPS just go no that's not so everybody's got to learn how to use a map how to use a compass okay. um, how to plot points how to triangulate points on a, with a map and a compass wow. how to be able to describe where you are I mean if you're out in the middle of you know the national forest um, then you better be able to get I mean, maybe you found this person okay, number one can you get back out Right. Um, and number two, can you get people to you? Maybe you've got somebody who's severely injured. You you found them, but now you have to be able to get your rescuers 
to okay. your subject. Okay. Um, so yeah, navigation is a big part. Being able to communicate over long distance is a big part. Um, as far as your cell phones, <coughs> if there's a signal, so say there might be, because ham radios are loud. If I got a ham radio, everybody's been sitting next to a security guy and the ham radio's going blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, so say perhaps we are looking for a suicidal individual. Most of the time you've got family members and friends in the area back at Infield Command. Hopefully they're removed to a certain degree so they're not hearing all this stuff. But you want to be able to, number one, you've got your radio protocols um, to kind of help control that. Otherwise you might say, um, okay. communicate on the radio um, that you will be having incident command call you or you will be calling in incident command so that you can <coughs> excuse me, have a more private conversation to let them know what you found, what do they want to do with it, just mark it, take a picture of it. Right. Sometimes, yeah, it might be, hey, I found this boot print. Is this, is right. this the print of the person that we're looking for? I might take a picture of it. Technology's awesome, and if there's a signal, I can shoot it. I can email yeah. it back. Yeah. Come in. They can take it over to mom and say, does this look like the print from your boot? Um, wow. So there's technology is helpful. Um, but if you count on it, you might find yourself literally up a creek. So I, I did a, an interview with uh, <coughs> Scott Myers out of ISS 24-7. ISS 24-7 provides large venue security uh, for the National Football League, NASCAR, um, a number of uh, like shopping malls, large, large venues of 80,000, 100,000 people. And one of the things uh, he was, was sharing uh, just in the last year or two, um, their technology is very app-based and to the point of being able to, to document things through taking pictures, time stamping. They're not GPS yet because they're typically not in like a search mode. I mean, they might be like a, be on the lookout for something, but... Um, but that was one thing he he talked about, and as he talked about that, and I knew we we talked today. Um, how is there a process where you you document like this is where I am at this time? And, you know, it's three thirty now. It's four thirty. This is where I am. It's five thirty. So, how does that information, I guess, get fed or it gets fed back? It, Every 15 minutes, do you check back in with a dispatcher, and then they, they kind of manage this centrally? Yeah, usually um, either incident command or there'll be a separate person on comms on your radio okay. whose responsibility it is to do a status check on your teams. Where are you? You know, give me a par. How many? What's your status? Where are your, where are your people? How's your dog doing? Um, how much percentage are you through your okay. search? How are you doing? So yeah, the definitely they want to keep track of, of, of your of your folks where they are, how they're doing. So you mentioned how your dog is doing. Is there like a fatigue level of a dog can search for 30, 45 minutes, and, and then there's a, a decline in in it depends the capacity on the dog. of the dog, or it depends on the dog, and it depends on um, the terrain and the conditions. Okay. So say if we're going through a cornfield um, in, in mid-July at noon. Number one, we're not going to be getting much set, um, but also it's going to be really hot, it's going to be miserable. Right. It's going to be, that dog is not going to be able to work a fraction of the time as long as mid-November through um, through wooded area, but you know, from the standard woods or fields. Um, and then you've got I've got a German Shepherd who's got a double coat, who can work fairly well in most most climates, okay. versus um, somebody else who might have um, some sort of smooth coated or like a big heavy Labrador, with maybe a big heavy black Labrador might be getting hotter, faster. Um, so it, it kind of depends on on the on the dog, on the weather, on the conditions, okay. on exactly how long they're going to be in perfect conditions with a fresh dog, um, 
quite frequently you'll have to stop them in order to have them take a break and force them to take a break. Wow. Um, because these, these tend to be pretty intense dogs. Right. And so generally they don't want to stop. How about, um, as we close, <coughs> something that stands out as one of your more memorable calls, and, and maybe a call that specifically had a positive um, resolution to it? Um, well, one, there's memorable ones. There's ones that really make an, that made an impact for various reasons. Um, ones that had a, a positive Apparently there's not as many of those. And, but there was a one where I was on and it was for a, um, uh, or you want one that I particularly was on or? It can, yeah, anything that you, that you want to share. Okay. Um, the one memorable that I wasn't on that search, but they had um, an elderly lady with dementia went out and in a, pretty remote area, um, a lot of retaining ponds and things like that, with, okay. and high high fences and locks and things like that, barbed wire over the top, that type of, and they had dogs out and people out searching all over the place, um, and one of the areas that that instant command was saying, you know, she's, she's old, she can't get through there. Okay. <laughs> Don't I mean just go buy it. Um, and my colleague was searching with her her yellow lab, and the lab said no. So we have to go this way. And so right. the per the handler trusted their dog um, and went to go check it out. And it was a retaining pond. And at this point, it was it was dark, um, so they're using flashlights. So it's a retaining pond with this giant fence around it that's all locked. And she's the the dog is insistent that we have to go in there. To, so they're shining their flashlights across, and in the middle of the retaining pond, there's a, some deadfall, and there's just the top of this lady's, you know, her nose and her eyes sticking up. And oh, she's wow. She's holding on to this branch to keep her upright. And so thankfully they caught, caught her eyes yeah. and, and just the top of her head, because she had somehow gotten in there, which can be the hallmark of somebody with dementia or Alzheimer's is, they go straight through, and if they run into an obstacle, they keep going until they physically can't move anymore. Okay. Um, and so she, she'd she somehow gotten through it or gotten over it. <coughs> I don't know if they ever figured out how exactly she got in there. Um, but yeah, they, they found her basically just in time. Okay. She's an older lady. It's getting dark. It's getting colder. Um, oh. <coughs> so that was interesting just because she should not have been able to get in there. Um, and, th and she did. Um, and thankfully the dog was insistent and the handler trusted trusted her dog. Um, so it wouldn't have been too much longer and that person <coughs> would have gone down um, and would have had a very different outcome. So I'm going to, <coughs> to summarize. Um, in what you mentioned too, to think talking about perimeters and, and if I'm a school administrator and looking at the area around my school and what I'm thinking is secure and what's not secure to really maybe scrutinize that in a whole different way um, that uh, is this really an area that uh, is going to be um, could be could be um, penetrated by a very determined you know young student with autism as far as you know working through a fence or working over a fence or something like that um, so some of the main points one is the, the process of dispatch that this is done through, appropriately it's done through law enforcement. So if you are contacting, um, you know, rifling through the, the internet, probably doing the search, um, and if you're contacted or uh, anyone else is contacted, their response uh, should be, have you contacted law enforcement? And then if they haven't, then to um, get that person's information, direct that person to contact law enforcement, and then I believe you would do a follow-up with law enforcement saying, I was contacted by this person, this is what they said to me, they said now that they were going to contact you. Um, and also, so as I'm sharing this for, um, let's say, school administrators, or just if, if it is a community and it is a search, 
um, involving a lot of community members that turn out because they hear this on the news, um, that to have staging areas where people check in, even if it's someone who might not have a rescue dog, but someone who wants to come and be a part of the search, you know, brings their <coughs> flashlights and, and whatever and wants to start, you know, walking, that they don't go off on their own and do that, that there's a coordinated effort. You said there's the check-in once people have been dispatched, um, that they are checking back in then at a centralized location, so you know areas that have been covered, and you can start to timestamp and look at look at those things. Um, because I, I see self-dispatch, and I've seen this in active shooter situations, self-dispatch to be a, a significant issue for site management. Um, and this is, this is different in some extent, but also not different in the way that uh, if people do hear about this, uh, just the good nature of, I think, a lot of people, if they have it, the, the time, the time um, and you know the availability to make uh, bring themselves to the scene, and so they can participate in what they anticipate is going to be a search. Or they just start with another group and say, you know, we're going to take this area and then maybe meet up <coughs> again. Um, I, I guess what I'm doing is I'm urging you, as an administrator or if you're a parent watching this, to to understand that this process would be centralized. So there might be people. You might have a question of, well, why can't we just get these people out? Well, it's because it's going to compromise the overall search. If there's if there's evidence, if there's overlapping of people searching in specific areas, ignoring other areas that might be more prevalent for the pattern of, again, you indicated, um, if it was somebody with autism, railroad tracks, machinery, going inside of structures, elevated structures. And then, um, one of the things that I don't think happens enough is, and I'm trying to accomplish through this video, is letting people know ahead of time what to expect. Because if I'm a school administrator, which I was for a number of years, and a child would have wandered away, I wouldn't have had any real idea of what the, someone in your capacity responding with serenade, what, what you, your role would have been, who you would have been working with, um, I, I wouldn't have understood how to communicate that to the parent. I would have needed a debriefing. Um, you know, perhaps as soon as you were on scene, and you know, my expectation would have been, that, you know, you'd be out right away. But maybe you need to wait for part of your team because there's an area you're, you're going to cover. You're coordinating with law enforcement. So um, when these things, I think, are communicated to teachers at a start of year in service. Just within you know 10 or 15 minutes as part of an overall school safety, but saying you know what we do have students with autism or you know with other needs, and if they do wander off campus or we're off site at some field trip or or something, you know you go to the corn maze and around Halloween and something like that, and all of a sudden something happens. One is um, you know don't panic. Um, identify where you know, your, your terrain uh, and if you if you are unfamiliar with that to identify you know let's say it is you're at a pumpkin patch and you find the the person who's in charge there if it's the farmer or whatever and say okay you know what what's around here is there any water is there any whatever so they can start to fill you in on some of that um, Google, Google, Google Maps as you said and then also um, you know, you, I, I think uh, that over-reliance on, on technology, which is really urging people not to go out and start to self-dispatch, saying, well, I've got my cell phone connection right now, and I can bring up my, my Garmin map, and I can follow it, and then all of a sudden, oop, the connection's gone. So we've lost that. So um, just wrapping up here, I think that's about all the points I want to communicate. The very last question before we end, if someone wants to learn more about rescue dogs or being part of a rescue team, even if they don't have a dog, who should they contact or how do they look that up on the internet? Um, if they're interested in, in learning more about search and rescue dogs, um, you, you can ask 
local your local law enforcement agencies. Okay. Are there teams you use? Are there teams that you're familiar with? You can ask um, local vets. Um, you can do um, an internet search for search and rescue. Um, you you kind of need to have an idea of what makes a professional team versus not a not so professional team. So that might be where to go to law enforcement because they'll yeah. they'll be able to yeah. help you. And I can say for one point, you know, you were talking about as administrators, and say if we've got um, an autistic student that suddenly, like here, we know. We've got railroad tracks up there. We've got um, a, a river. Right. There's no reason you can't get people with, you know, sign them out. Say, you guys, give me your cell phones. You go there, 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 and, and be watching along that river, and don't you move. We'll be coming back and forth. And you folks go to that, those railroad tracks. So maybe you can, so long as you keep track of those people, if you know you have a student that's going to be drawn to those areas that can be quite dangerous, keep track of them, but you can... You know, send them out, and when law enforcement gets there, you can say, I've got these people right there. Okay. Um, and they are basically they're containing that hazard. So hopefully if the student hasn't made it there yet, you've got those folks that are rare, that are there and ready to um, intercept them. It makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, because otherwise, thanks for bringing that up, because that could be a, a delay when you have resources that you could put in certain areas and then when your ICS responds and your police are there you can say we've got these people in these locations right now. Yeah, you just need to keep track of who's where and when and make sure that they're well, they're aware that they need to be checking in and not just hearing off on their own. Alright, we are going to wrap this up. Uh, I uh, again am with uh, Jennifer Fritton and we were having a discussion of rescue dogs uh, among other um, discussion, service animals, comfort, animal search and rescue. Uh, Jennifer is a handler for Serenade, uh, a rescue dog, and definitely contributes very positively to the safety and well-being of many, many people. So thank you for your work, Jennifer, and thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. That was a fascinating interview with Jennifer, and I appreciate her time. Uh, it's unfortunate she had a little bit of a cough, but the information is incredibly valuable. Some points I took away from the interview. One, make sure that you involve law enforcement whenever you contact or have rescuers involved um, in any type of rescue effort, that that is not being driven by self-dispatched individuals, that it is a coordinated effort. I was surprised, actually, when Jennifer indicated the frequency at which self-dispatched people show up on a scene, and then also the frequency at which they kind of undertake um, parts of a search and rescue on their own and can end up compromising the search and rescue. So as a parent, school administrator, um, to, to understand that if that call goes out, there's gonna be a number of people responding that needs to be directed through law enforcement and then that is the, the most effective way to handle that. So um, very interesting. And Jennifer has, has shared with me the majority of, um, of calls that are school related tend to be students with autism that do wander from the school, particularly younger students. And I like at the end how she indicated, um, don't hesitate if you're an administrator and there you know, is a, a body of water, uh, busy road, um, road, railroad tracks, whatever nearby to dispatch certain staff to those areas and say, you know, just go there and, and observe and be in contact. We have your cell phone number. And then once police arrive on the scene, then police can, can jump in and take it from there. So you're protecting, um, you know, hopefully those, those vital areas, which might be most prone to attracting a child with autism. So, uh, I, again, I appreciate the interview with Jennifer. Very fascinating to be a rescue dog handler and then to respond to various various calls. Um, I wanted to just bring closure to a few things from last week. Uh, I mentioned I had a 150-foot rope light, a red rope light. Uh, it did arrive, and actually we had a snowstorm warning. So I looked at the radar and knew I had about two hours to get outside, and it was about 15 degrees, 
and put up this rope light. I did it on my own, and actually it was remarkable, remarkably flexible um, for you know 150 foot rope light. And it was funny because I put it up, and I realized I had about 30 extra feet. I couldn't go up any higher with the ladder, so I kind of snaked it back to the trunk and then worked it down like a candy cane. And I was outside later, and one of my neighbors was walking by, and I was taking a picture of it. And uh, one of my neighbors was walking by, and he said, boy, that's, that's really cool. And uh, I'm thinking, all right, I appreciate that. But it was completely by chance that it ended up the way that it, that it did. So um, there have been you know, other people who have complimented on it. So I'll, I'll just toss a little picture up right here um, if you're obviously watching this on YouTube. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with the light. And I just like the effect that it has. So, and it wasn't that cold, you know. I thought it, it was cold, but I didn't really feel it in my hands, and, and the light was was flexible. So, um, I had uh, I, I like to go running, you know, pretty much every night. But I and last year was the first time in you know it's Wisconsin, very cold, and I, I slipped a few times when I was running, and that hadn't happened before. Um, and I, I've learned to kind of roll as you fall and that's kind of a protective mechanism um, nothing significant but I, I, I had some cleats that I that I bought that would strap onto the, the shoes and they snapped like the first time I put them on so I'm like I splurged got a better pair so those will be arriving soon because um, it's it's just too <laughs> too risky to go out and do that stuff um, and, and do any type of running or even walking uh, unless you have something like that. Um, so, yeah, but, you know, I think last year, though, was the first time I can re remember that I that I fell. And I do wear, like, a yellow vest that's reflective and all that because one time I almost got hit by a car. I had a neighbor, and he would go out running at night, and uh, the guy wore all black, like nothing reflective. So he was like a ninja running. <laughs> and I think someone actually wrote a letter to the editor once kind of calling him out on it like dude don't do this <laughs> you're going to get hit by a car so um what i'm going to do in the next video it's uh it'll come out on december 26th it's going to be more uh introspective i'm going to talk about just some of the safety from more of a agency and purpose perspective just a lot of anecdotal stories i mean almost i think the whole thing is going to be anecdotal stories that um, from my youth and, and coming into adulthood, uh, different different elements that develop my agency, my purpose, which I think are very important factors when it comes to um, when it comes to safety, especially school safety, safety for youth. Um, what I hear more and more is is a struggle to have youth identify what their agency is, what their what their purpose in life is, the ability to set goals, and and. I'm going to, again, reflect on, on some very interesting parts of that as, as I went through my life and then maybe some ideas that, that I have and things I'm going to incorporate into some of my books uh, that will be released here before too long. So, um, again, thank you to uh, Sprigio for supporting the show, S-P-R-I-G-E-O, and uh, Sprigio is a leader in school safety systems and online reporting. You can find out more on their website, www.sprigio.com, S-P-R-I-G-E-O. If you talk to Joe, say David, the safety doc sent you. Thank you for the support of ISS 24-7 and for the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, Orange County. John and the good folks of the 405 Media supporting this safety doc podcast and some changes in store very positive here for the 405 and the safety doc podcast uh, which i'll talk about um, in some upcoming podcasts but for right now i'm wishing you a safe and happy holiday season Thank you.